Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in the presence of a real storyteller. We're here in Asheville, North Carolina. Rodney Crowell is going to be taking the stage with his band soon. Rodney Crowell is a great songwriter and singer. With more than 40 years in the music business, I count 17 studio albums. His newest record is an homage to his Lone Star roots. It's called simply Texas. It features such guests as Leanne Womack, Vince Gill, Willie Nelson, Lyle Lovett, Ringo Starr, Billy Gibbons, and others. Mr. Crowell is also a two-time Grammy Award winner. His work has been recorded by Alan Jackson, Tim McGraw, Bob Seger, Jimmy Buffett, John Denver, Etta James, George Strait. He is an inductee of the Texas Country Music Hall of Fame and the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. It's a great pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. I know that you've described your music as folky, do you mean kind of folky country like Bob Dylan's Nashville skyline? Well, no, no. In the beginning, Hank Williams was the quintessential. He was the first honky-tonk hero. He wore a cowboy hat, you know, and he dressed in the nudie suits, and it was part of the fashion. And it was very honest music and very, very sexy you know, and very, I mean, he had a song called Hey, Good Looking, What You Got Cooking, and I was about cooking something up with me, which is just a great pickup line. <laughs> but when I say folky, I'm thinking more about the storytelling songs that Mickey Newberry and Towns Van Zandt and Guy Clark more or less fashioned. Billy Joe Shaver is somewhere in between, you know, in that school of honky-tonk hero in the same time, old-school storyteller. But here's the thing about it, you know, when you start trying to define musical sensibilities, you're running into trouble there because mm. it's, you know, I don't think of Dylan's Nashville Skyline at all as as really country music. He was, you know, by the time he made Nashville Skyline, it was, he was a global superstar, and he was experimenting with that expression. And I, if you if you listen to Lay Lady Lay, it's pop music, and it just has a little folk tinge to it. The same way when Neil Young made uh, Looking for a Heart of Gold, it sort of has some country flavor, but it, it's, it comes from a rock sensibility. Mm -hmm. On the note of Hank Williams... Just the other day, I was watching the new documentary that Ken Burns directed, and you contributed a lot to that. I was curious to know, what do you think of this new documentary? I haven't seen it yet. You haven't? No. I haven't. Mainly because I have a new album out, and I've been on the road, and I've been doing interviews, and I've been... Uh, I don't read reviews, mm -hmm. and... Normally, I'm pretty reluctant to look at myself on television. Extremely reluctant to look at myself on television. I will, I will watch the, the 
Ken Burns' documentary on country music because they do great work and it's it's very well researched. Every you know every documentary film that Ken Burns has ever done, from the Dust Bowl to the to Vietnam to the jazz yeah. era. They do great work, so I will watch it, despite the fact that I have a recurring role in it. I'll just grip my teeth and look at myself and try to cut myself some slack. Hmm. Well, I can say I really, really enjoyed it. Good. You just mentioned jazz music. Your wife was telling me that you saw this Miles Davis movie today. Yeah, I went to, to see Bertha Cool this afternoon. Somebody asked me the other day on this video... If I had one record that I would take with me on a desert island, you know, that hypothetical, nonsensical question, I answered quite honestly that it would be kind of blue. Yeah. Miles Davis. Mainly because there's no lyric, and I, I pride myself on being a lyric writer. I write some good melodies, too, but I think if I were going to be stuck for all time listening to music, I, I wouldn't want to have any lyric involved in it. It's interesting because I think some people would maybe be surprised by how many Americana or country singer-songwriters are big jazz fans. Oh, yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I am. You know, Duke Ellington. You know, without without Duke Ellington, you don't get the Texas Playboys and Bob Wills. That's swing, you know. Yeah. I'm not very knowledgeable about jazz music. I've recently really done my homework on John Coltrane, and I like Count Basie and, and Duke Ellington. And Miles Davis, obviously, is, to me, the centerpiece of all of it. But there are those who would tell you Coltrane is it. So if it's good music and I find it, I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to listen to it a lot because... I'm made, you know, I'm sort of country, alt country, Americana, I'm quote unquote, but I love music. You know, people would be surprised, you know, to see what the kind of music I listen to. I listen to a lot of music. Kendrick Lamar, to me, is, is the quintessential artist of our day. Right now, I don't know that I, that there's anybody particularly happening, happening now that I know of that has the breadth and the vision and the, creativity that Kendrick Lamar has in the last two albums that he's made. I'm sure there's somebody out there I don't know hmm. that I hope find me. Well, on that note, people, again, they would maybe have these misconceptions about what you listen to. Who is somebody that you would like to work with? Maybe it would be a surprise, maybe not, whether writing or recording, whatever. Well, you know, it's, it's outside the realm of possibility that I would have anything to contribute to what Kendrick Lamar would do. Mm -hmm. And I don't kid myself that, that I have a grasp on the language that he uses or the, or the creativity that he brings to, to the music that he makes. But Bruno Mars, perhaps so, you know. But there again, you know, Bruno Mars is a lot younger than me and would not have any reason for reaching out my way. Uh, certainly Tom Waits does not need my help. 
The truth of the matter is, everybody that I really admire doesn't need my help. You know, I admire John Paul White quite a bit, and he's not opposed to reaching out for my help now and again. I got a text from him earlier asking me about a specific song he might like to write. Would I help him out with it? Absolutely. But, you know, Regina Spector, would love to work with Regina Spector. You know, I think she's brilliant. There's a lot of great collaborations on this album, Texas. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping you can tell us about the circumstances that led Ringo Starr. Ringo Starr and I getting together to record a track was simple, but so unexpected. We have a mutual friend who is his basically his videographer, a fellow by the name of Brent Carpenter, who's also my friend. And Brent had been trying for some time to get Ringo and I together for the purpose of writing a song for one of Ringo's albums, because Ringo's pretty prolific. He makes pretty often. Uh, that hadn't worked out, but I, in passing, I mentioned to Brent that, hey, I'm starting a new album. Not quite sure what it's going to be yet, but I think I have a good idea. And <laughs> a week or ten days later, I get a text saying, hey, Ringo says he's available if you want to record a track. <laughs> and I said, I'm on my way. <laughs> hang on, hang on, we'll have to schedule this. So, you know, we found the time, and I went out to Ringo's studio on his property in West Hollywood and uh, recorded You're Only Happy When You're Miserable. Good fun. You know, and, and uh, I was delighted and elated. And all of my friends in L.A., and I called them up and said, I just finished the session with Ringo, dinner's on me. <laughs> So what is it like being around him? Is it at all intimidating, or is it just completely relaxing? To be around a beetle? Yeah. No, no, no. Ringo would diffuse that in a heartbeat. I'd met Ringo in the 70s, uh, spent a night carousing and singing country songs all night long in the Hyde Park Hotel with him in the 76. So I knew how sweet he was. He was a sweet man. He was really sweet and funny, and he was hanging with a guy. Keith Allison, and uh, so I knew that he was a kind-hearted fella, so I wasn't worried about that, but he was just a gentleman, and he's smart, funny, I mean, really beetle funny, you know, witty, 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 witty fella, but made made me and uh, really comfortable at his place. He was a sweetheart. Nice. A good-hearted man. You know, you think about those Beatles, boy, I don't know McCartney, I never met him, but he seems like he's a pretty grounded fella. Yeah. Of course, he's a global superstar, but he's, it doesn't seem like Beatlemania wrecked him. Mm-mm. Doesn't seem like his ego has eaten him alive, and certainly Ringo's like right on the ground and trading barbs, and, you know, he's like, he's a mate. <laughs> so I was impressed. Very cool. You know, I was listening to that song, and kind of on that note of of Ringo and Paul McCartney being so grounded, why do you think happiness eludes so many people? Well, if you if your identity is tied up into in your relevance and your position, and whether or not the adulation is coming back at you in the same amount that it did 
at your peak or or you've not yet reached your peak, it can be problematic, mm-hmm. you know. And if you take the applause and the adulation away and you're an empty vessel, you got problems. Best bet is to, early on in this entertainment game, is to figure out how to identify what it is that sustains you for real, what makes you who you are, and what's fulfilling. I've been lucky that way. You know, I've, I've got a, a family that loves me, and they're smart. I've got four daughters and some grandchildren, and they're really smart, and they've never wanted to settle for less than the best that I could be. And to my credit, I've always wanted to come up to their standards. So, you know, when I've been less than popular, quote-unquote, from the outside looking in, I've been okay. And by the same token, when popularity sort of comes at me in my own modest reality, I'm okay there too. Mm-hmm. I was listening to a lot of the different recordings that have been made of your songs by other people. Who really knocked you out? Who? Who? Roger Daltrey knocked me out. Yeah? And it was a recording of a song of mine called Ashes by Now that was never released. And it knocked my children out because this was back in the 80s. And somehow I got a rough mix on cassette and I would play it around the house. And when the chorus would come, which they'd heard me sing... But when they would hear Daltrey sing it, they would yell, "Woo!" You know, it was like it was like Daltrey mania. And I've been thinking. I recently set out on a mission to see if I lost that cassette. But I'm recently set out on a mission to see if I could find that outtake. I hope I can. I hope we find it because I want to see if it's as good as I thought it was back then. <laughs> Certainly, Seeger Seeger blew me away with "Shame on the Moon." So much so that I stopped performing that song because he did it so much better than me. And mind you, there were other people who had big hits on my songs that their version wasn't as good as mine. Mm. But I'll never say that. I'll never name names. Right. right. Because, you know, that would be unseemly. Bad form. If somebody records one of my songs, I just, I'm grateful. It seems like every time I've ever seen or heard a live recording of Jimmy Buffett doing Stars on the Water. He always says the same thing. He says, this is a song I always wish I had written. Yeah, probably so, because, you know, <laughs> he would, Buffett would know that vision of the coastline at night to see. When I wrote that song, I was, I was really interested in, in impressionistic painters. And... And so I was thinking about uh, how might I apply what I think I understand about impressionistic painters, about Monet or Renoir, how that they would look at a particular scene and distort it in such a way that you just get the impression of what you see. And that's when it occurred to me that driving along the, the coastline, particularly the coastline of Alabama, around Mobile, Pascagoula, Mississippi. There are some piers out there where the lights, you know, there was a, some clubs and some dance halls out on piers out, out off the coast there. And that's when it, ah, oh, you know, it just looks like there's stars out there on the water. And I said, ah, that's an impressionistic image. 
Same thing for Shame on the Moon. I wrote that those two songs around the same time. And I truly was experimenting with how I might apply what I was learning about impressionistic painting to songwriting. So when you're writing, are you visual in the same sense of, of when you're writing in your mind? Can you see it? Do you picture it? Certainly in that particular period of writing, I was picturing something. Although Shame on the Moon was more of an impression of what the night sky looks like when the moon's up there. But but for the most part, it's more emotional to me than visual. And it starts with a feeling. Usually for me it's a feeling. And that feeling might come from a chord change, a tone on, on the positioning I strike on the guitar. Creates an emotional feeling. And then I start working at bringing that to life, giving it a language, finding the words to convey what I'm feeling. In this day and time where albums are, you know, you have so many people who they just, they stream it. And I hear a lot of people, they say it's almost like they threw up their hands. They said, oh, gosh, I don't even know why I'm doing this anymore. I've heard people say that. I have too. Yeah. So People I really admire. Likewise. And it's a shame because to me, I like to listen to albums from beginning to end. I like to listen to the whole thing. So why do you do it? Why do you record in this day and age where there's so many people who are are not doing it? Well, I don't I don't make music for streaming. Hmm? I make I make albums because I still see it like a uh, I've always equated it with an art show. Yeah. You know, a, a painter does 20 canvases, puts it up on the wall somewhere at a gallery. And people come in and look at the show, look at the different pieces. And usually there's some sort of through narrative. And so long ago in making albums, I adopted that. I said, you know, I'm at, this is, these are sound paintings we're going to hang up. You know, I want somebody to come in with the first track and, and leave with the last track. And it's like they've been to a gallery and... And all the, you know, the albums that I, I mentioned, kind of blue, are you know, uh, bringing it all back home, or Kendrick Lamar's uh, last two albums. It's like I want to put them on at the beginning. I want to go th- all the way through to the end. Yeah. And I want to be in that world. And you know, there's a good number of albums that you know stand up that way for me. Chuck Berry's 28s, although it was a collection of singles, you put it on the beginning and, you know, you're in one world from the time you start until you <laughs> get to the end. Streaming, you know, I'm not a fan of streaming. But yeah. For one, we don't get paid. Yeah. And for number two, it's, there's no investment. I want to be invested. You know, I want an artist that I admire, Rain Dogs by Tom Waits. I admire that album so much, and I want to start at the beginning. I want to write it all the way through to the end. And that's the kind of work I want to do. And it seems like there's enough people out there who want that experience that I'm still in business. There's a couple of songs on this album that you co-wrote with Guy Clark. What are your most vivid memories of, of him? 
of guy laughing. Laughing? Yeah. Guy and I, most of the time, would laugh a lot. Especially when we were younger. We got older, you know, the, like many long-term friendships, I got sideways with him. He got pissed off at me, and it took us a little while to work it out. But we wound up laughing at the end. But God, we laughed in our sense of humor. I mean, we found it was absurd the things that we would find to laugh about. That you you might be there, and we're laughing about some silly twist of a word that we that we're saying the way a word sounds or something, the way we would use it. We would just laugh until we cried about it. And somebody else could be listening and go, I don't get what you guys are, <laughs> what y'all are on about. That's number one. And we used to do really silly. We used to, we had so much fun with, I have such a vivid memory. Guy was getting rid of all, guys who's ever getting rid of all of their glassware, their wine glasses, their mugs, their glasses. So we set them all up on a, on a two by 12, about seven feet long. And we took each piece of glassware, and we got a BB gun, and said, okay, we're going to do a sculpt. This is going to be a sculpture. So it's one BB per, per glassware. So he would take the BB gun, and he'd hit, you know, a wine glass. And then I'd take the BB gun, and I'd hit a peanut butter jar. And we did that all the way to the very end. And at the, at the very, very last thing, there was one wine glass left. And Guy looks at it, he says, watch this. And he just took the BB gun from his hip and shot from his hip, hit it perfect at the, the stem of the wine glass, and the goblet part of the wine glass just sat over. It was a one in ten million shot. And that was the end of our sculpture. And we just rolled over laughing about it. That's what I remember about Guy. And my goodness, what a writer. Yeah. Who would you say taught you the most about songwriting? Guy. Guy Clark. Yeah. But what he told me about, but, you know, Guy would say, oh, I didn't teach you nothing. You know, I'm nobody's mentor, you know. But through observation, the thing that I learned from him, he didn't teach me, I learned it from him, is self-editing. Of all the songwriters I know that I've ever been around, he was the best self-editor that I've ever come across. And I learned it, you know, we might be tinkering with a song that, and I'd come up with a line or something that was really, or he would come up with a line that, like most songwriters would go, man, that's a choice line. But if it didn't have anything to do with the song, he'd elbow it out. Hmm. And after a couple of times, I went, ah, oh, that's brave. You know, it does. It has no place in this song, even though it is clever. Valuable lesson for me. It's self-editing. He was the best. Hmm. And maybe there's some, some out there that are really, really super self-editors, but he's the best I ever came across. Hmm. I'm pretty good now. Best case scenario. What would you like for someone to think, or what would you like someone to feel when they listen to this album, Texas? I think uh, with Texas, at the end of the day, if I could have one wish for a listener, I would go with glad. I'd want somebody to be glad they heard it. 
I've made other records where I would want a difference, maybe a different emotional reaction to it, but I think glad's what I have to say about Texas. I'm glad I made it. Me too. Yeah. What is the best thing about being Rodney Crow? The people that love me. My daughters, my grandchildren, my wife, my friends. There are some people that I know that really love me. And not, there's nothing better. There's a lot of people out there that know me and might respect me or might be fans. Or, but what I'm talking about is that thing where they come in the door because they love me. There's nothing better. I'm not looking for anything better than that. At the end of my interviews, I always like to give the guest the stage. It's not limited to music. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in? Right now? About anything. Oh, right now. Right now. And I think from now on, what I have to say is, this is our planet. It is our mother it gives us life. It has sustained us for so long, and we have abused it for so very long. And we're about to get the check on it. I mean, the price that we're going to pay for it. I believe this with all my heart. And, you know, we're pretty much past due. You know, there's, the science is still saying, you know, we got 10 years to turn this around. I don't think, you know, the things that I've been reading, my study, and I don't think we have 10 years to turn it around. I think we have 10 years to maybe break even from now on. The damage that we've done is going to take centuries to to correct, if indeed we do. And I have grandchildren. I've got a 14-month-old a, a grandson. I want him to have a full life. I'm worried about it. So we have to come to understand greed. We have to under, and it's, you know, it's like, it's really easy for me to take on Exxon. So Exxon, they're a bunch of greedy bastards and they've been lying to us for years. They, they knew in 1988, 1987, what the end game was with what they were peddling and what they're selling. And they lied to us. They put out a, a propaganda thing about, you know, Climate change is a hoax. It's not real. Well, you know, guess what? It's real. And if you don't realize that it's real, you out there, then you haven't been paying attention. And you're, you're living in denial. With that, I say, maybe it's not too late. I hope so. I'm certainly doing everything that I can to not leave a carbon footprint. But I have miles to go before I'm doing as good a job as I, I think I should be doing. So I can't be too judgmental about anybody else and what they do. However, I'll come back to where I started. We have to understand the nature of greed if we're ever going to turn it around. There are all these labels people could put on you that you're a singer, a songwriter. At the beginning, I was talking about you're a recording artist. You're about to perform on stage. Who is Rodney? Who is Rodney Crowell at heart? Uh, a husband and father, songwriter, friend, performer, 
and uh, a work in progress. <laughs> well, Rodney Crow, thank you very much for sitting down with me. <laughs> thank you. It's a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. All right. I got time to brush my teeth and <laughs> get ready for a show. Okay, bud. Zap, pop, bee, pop. Baba do knock a jiba loop dickies on the goosey at the cassette calacapina say the bochicky yaki pumpkin cock a dicky to con kitty donkey poop be like a two zikon de livonga to goodbye.